The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Diplosport podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the latest edition of the Diplosport podcast. As many of you know, mixed martial arts will make its return to New York State on November 12th when the UFC will host UFC 205 at Madison Square Garden. So in honor of that, today's episode, we talk with Ariel Helwani, who is probably the most well-known journalist in the mixed martial arts game right now. Ariel's got a really interesting story in terms of the international aspect of sports. He grew up in Canada. He came to the U.S. to go to journalism school, and he was an early adopter of mixed martial arts and started covering the sport before anybody else did. Just one thing I wanted to highlight here, too, is because we did this interview actually before the summer, um, there is a section right at the end where we talk about his love of the New York Knicks. And while the information might be a little dated, it was before they had totally revamped their roster for the 2016 season. I still thought that Ariel's enthusiasm for hoops was definitely worth keeping in. So I uh, just wanted to flag that for you as you listen to this wonderful discussion with a great guy. So with that, I'll turn things over to my conversation with Ariel. We have uh, Ariel Helwani, who is the most famous reporter in, in the mixed martial arts world. It's been a lot of fun following you, and you have a real interesting story how you got into MMA. It, I know that you uh, are originally from Canada. You uh, you went to school up at Syracuse. Uh, how did you make that decision to, to leap into covering mixed martial arts in the mid 2000s? What what made you think that it was the it was worth investing so much time and energy into? First off, thank you for the time. I uh, I always loved combat sports. I always loved sports. When I was a, a youngster, when I was in the ninth grade, I um, I was reading Sports Illustrated, and they had this breakdown of you know the best schools for this and that, and said that the best school for sports broadcasting was Syracuse University. So I decided that uh, that's the place that I needed to go to pursue my dream of becoming a sports broadcaster. And I got to Syracuse in 2001. When I got there, I uh, quickly realized that everyone kind of wanted to be the same thing, baseball, basketball, football announcer. So I started focusing a lot more on uh, mixed martial arts, and in particular the UFC, and I had a radio show for three years there. Loved interviewing the fighters. I would reach out to them, guys like Dan Severn and Bruce Buffer. I would write to them. Uh, via their their website at the time, and it was a lot of fun. But when I graduated in 2004, I uh, I went the route of TV production, and that was fine for a few years. But then in 2006, 2007, I really wanted to pursue being an MMA journalist because as a fan and a consumer of the sport, I just didn't really love the coverage, and I felt like it was going to become a lot bigger than it was at the time. And I remember in 2001 telling my parents that uh, in 10 years, this sport is going to be mainstream, and I want to be one of those guys who's there when it becomes mainstream. <clears throat> so in 2007, I started my own website, and my goal was to post a, an interview every morning with a different fighter. And I gave myself six months to get noticed. <clears throat> I didn't get paid or anything like that for <clears throat> sorry the, uh, the website. And if I didn't get a job, as a result of the website, by April 1st, 2008, I uh, was going to go back to production. And luckily, with just a few days left on my deadline, I ended up getting uh, a great job out of it. 
And it just kind of snowballed from there. I went full-time into being an MMA reporter, and I just wanted to do things a little differently, cover the sport a little differently, cover it a little more professionally, in particular from a, a video standpoint. And uh, 10 years after I told my parents that I thought it would be mainstream, the UFC signed with Fox exactly <laughs> 10 years later, and uh, the, the rest is kind of history. What did you see early on how how did you know that it was going to be mainstream i mean we had us politicians calling it human cockfighting how did you know that this sport was going to be become mainstream well a few things first of all i found it to be captivating mm-hmm. i found it i saw that they were cleaning it up weight classes rules things of that nature <clears throat> and i thought that the uh, characters were starting to get really interesting and they were becoming more athletic. It wasn't just barroom brawling. And I also felt like given the structure of mixed martial arts where it was structured more like pro wrestling than boxing where you have these organizations and, you know, everyone in the organization essentially has to fight each other, that would be a lot more sustainable. I also felt like it had taken elements from pro wrestling, showmanship, the theatrics, stories, all that stuff. In particular, the era of, you know, Peter Ortiz and Ken Shamrock and Chuck Liddell and Maddie Couture, those guys. Um, but this was real. This was unpredictable. It was great. Back in the day, uh, the UFC pay-per-views used to be on Friday nights, <clears throat> and, and I just remember watching them, you know. I remember watching the best damn sports show period on Fox Sports. <laughs> sure, sure. Michael Irvin, and, John uh, Crook. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock were on. I was like, wow, these guys are covering UFC. This is great. And they were going back and forth. And that really opened my eyes. I was like, this is, this is, people are starting to notice this. Like, it's still a fringe sport. It's still on the outside looking in. People are starting to notice it. And I don't know. I just had a feeling that it was going to keep going up. Yeah, I and, want, you know, it, 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 uh, it took a while, but it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, continuing to go up, in my opinion. Sure. I, I want to put a pin in that uh, when we talk about the athletes' personalities, because I, I think you have a pretty cool story. Uh, when you were getting in, in the reporting game early on about how accessible the athletes were, but I, I do want to take it back just a little bit. You grew up uh, in Canada, in Montreal, correct? Correct. Uh, what and and you said you read in Sports Illustrated that the Newhouse School was the the best in the country. W- was it a big deal for you as, as a Canadian to uh, come to the states to study? I, I mean, I know Syracuse is is fairly close, but uh, yeah, why why come to the to the U.S.? Why not go to McGill or something like that up there in Canada? Well, that, that's actually a great question. It was a very big deal. Um, the kids that I grew up with in, in Montreal, and in particular the Montreal Jewish community, everyone just stayed at home. Uh, everyone went to either McGill University or Concordia University, and I was the only one of my friends to leave, go outside of Montreal, and, you know, even more so than that in the United States, and, and that was a big deal with visas and whatnot. So uh, that actually contributed to me not having the best time at Syracuse. I was very homesick. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, I just didn't... I was there as a as a man on a mission, and uh, I did not want to, you know, integrate myself into the community. I didn't want to make any friends. I didn't want to join any fraternities or clubs or anything like that. I was very much uh, a loner, and I was never like that, but I developed a lot of social anxiety, which I've been able to shed now, you know, that, you know, everything's back to normal in my life, and I'm happier than ever, but it was it was definitely a very tough time. Um, just getting used to being alone in a new country. Of course, I'm not talking about going to Russia or anything like that, but 
you know, this was um, my, my first couple weeks there. 9-11 happened, so that was a very tumultuous time, and that makes you a little more homesick. Obviously, I'll never forget being there. And a lot of the kids who went to Syracuse, um, you know, are from the, the tri-state area, so they were very much affected by it. So yeah, it was it was it was definitely tough, and there there are definitely a few times where I said, "All right, I'm out of here. I'm going home." But uh, luckily, my parents never let me do that. Were your parents immigrants to Canada? Yes, um, my mom is is originally from uh, Beirut, Lebanon, and my dad's from Alexandria, Egypt. What was the language you spoke growing up uh, at home? Was it was it English? Was it French? A- Arabic? Well, uh, actually, for my first four five years. Um, on Earth, I spoke predominantly French. In fact, when my parents put me in uh, pre-K, I didn't know how to speak English, so they told me that I had to go back home and learn some English before I can come back. And my mom actually uh, helped teach me a little bit of English. Um, and then over time, all my friends were English. My school was English, and, and English became, you know, my 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 top language. Um, but at home, my parents spoke to each other predominantly in Arabic and French. In, uh, in Lebanon. My dad grew up in, um, Egypt, moved to Lebanon, and over there, it's, uh, Arabic and then French in school. So they were, they're very fluent in, uh, in both. And, uh, it was actually helpful because by law in Quebec, half the day has to be French. So, uh, when I had, you know, had homework and things like that, my mom was very helpful in that regard. So I understand Arabic just because they, uh, you know, they would talk to each other in Arabic. <laughs> And you, you had to know you had to know if they were talking about you. Yeah, of course. And I knew all the bad words and things like that from my uncles. But uh, I so I understand it. I, I speak French. I, I speak English, obviously, and I can also speak Hebrew because I went to Jewish school. Wow, that's uh, I mean, you're the one that should be the diplomat. <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah. Impressive. Did uh, do you think that growing up in such an international environment, it, it must have shaped your worldview, right? Um, absolutely. I mean, first of all, living in Canada <clears throat> is, uh, you know, to me, I, I wish I appreciated it more when I was uh, a youngster because now I just see the way of life and the way the people are there and how multicultural in particular Quebec is and, and Montreal specifically is. Um, you know, the fact that there are two languages, bilingual, uh, province. I mean, really, uh, Canada is just a tremendous place to, to grow up, and it, it, it shaped me in many ways. And then growing up, you know, in the Jewish community and with a Jewish background and, you know, having that um, history in my back pocket as well. And uh, my parents really liked to travel when we were younger, so I had the, the great privilege to traveling, you know, to many different places in Europe. And, uh, you know, I've been to the Middle East several times. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Israel several times. In fact, uh, my wife and I, when we got married, our honeymoon was in Israel as well. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah, I have a great appreciation. Now, of course, living in the U.S., you, you have a whole uh, new you know, appreciation for uh, America. When, when I was a youngster, I uh, always dreamed of living in the U.S. I, I dreamed of, you know, the American dream and coming here, and I thought it was so cool that there were NBA teams. You know, that was all very... My favorite sport growing up was the NBA, and we didn't, you know, there were no, uh, there were no Raptors or Grizzlies at the time, and so it was just to me like, wow, you guys can go to an NBA game was the coolest thing ever. So yeah, I, I definitely feel like I, I grew up, you know, and you know, having parents from Lebanon and Egypt, when most of your friends, their parents are from Montreal, 
definitely gives you a, a worldly view, in my opinion. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I was up in Toronto for All Star a couple weeks ago. Oh wow! And I'm, I'm jealous. Yeah, oh, God. Well, it was an incredible spectacle. But God, you Canadians love your basketball and the diversity when you walk into the uh, the arena there. Uh, is, is just incredible too. You you see what a melting pot a city like Toronto is. It's very impressive. Um, um, you know, it's funny you say that because yes, now Canada has uh, you know developed this reputation for being a, a great basketball country, mm-hmm. and our national team is doing a lot better. Although we, we sort of choked uh, last summer, hopefully we can squeak in and, and get in the uh, the Olympics this year. But um, it wasn't like that. I remember in 1994. Um, uh, when the Knicks, I was a huge, I am a huge Knicks fan, and I, I it was certainly easier to be a, a Knicks fan back in the 90s. Um, sure, yes. When, when the Knicks made the finals in 94, I would wear, I had two jerseys. I had a Patrick Ewing jersey, my favorite player, and a John Stark jersey, and I would wear one or the other every single day, rotating, you know, Ewing starts, Ewing starts for the entire playoff run. And no one gave a crap about basketball at the time. And this is 94, so this is a year before the Raptors came. And it's like, it, I mean, there was a blurb about the NBA Finals and the, the papers and things like that. I would go to this one particular corner store that sold the New York Post, and I was reading, I was like, I can't believe the Knicks are on the front page. Like, this is big news. It was just so crazy to me. Um, so, yeah, so, and, and I grew up playing basketball, and I played on the, uh, there's a there's a thing called the Maccabi Games, which is sort of like a Jewish Olympics. Sure. I played on that for two years in '98 and '99. Um, oh, I, I did Pan Am Games. I didn't yeah. realize this. Wow. Yeah, I played uh, the Junior Games in '98 in Detroit, and then the Pan Am Games in um, Mexico City. I played for Canada. So in Detroit, I played for Montreal because that's more regional, and then the Pan Am Games I played for Canada, and I was the captain of uh, the Canadian team, um, and I actually. I don't know if this means anything to you, but Doug Gottlieb, who's become sort of sure. a uh, media personality, yep. yeah, I, I, I got to sit on the bus with him, and that was like my big highlight <laughs> on the American team. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he was somewhat of a college star at the time. The Oklahoma and State, the, the, right? Yeah, and the South Park movie um, had just come out with the whole Blaine Canada stuff, so I remember him singing Blaine Canada on the bus. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a that was a great thrill. It was amazing to like have the jersey, Canada, and all that. So yeah, basketball is a big part of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, and I I presume that's why you were into reading Sports Illustrated. That's why sports journalism yeah. first came up on your radar. Yeah, I was a huge sports fan growing up, mm-hmm. and you know my goal at the time was just to be well versed in everything. I mean, I love huge uh, Buffalo Bills fan, huge Montreal Expos fan. Cool. Um, Amazingly, hockey was like my fourth favorite sport, which you don't hear often from Canadians. Um, so I, I think I had like some American blood in me or something. I'm surprised, and, you know. I'm surprised they didn't strip your citizenship. Yeah. Um, in, in 1993, when the Canadians played the LA Kings in the Stanley Cup Finals, Game Five, they were on the verge of winning the Cup, and I was watching Game One of the NBA Finals between the Bulls <laughs> and Suns. I remember, and uh, my friends were like, "What are you doing?" I just, I, it just didn't mean as much to me for some strange reason. So, um, yeah, that's, I, I consumed everything, Sports Illustrated, Sport Magazine, Hoop Magazine, all that stuff. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I was listening to your, your conversation with Katie Nolan a couple weeks back, 
And you talked about wanting to post a podcast a day or, or an interview a day with, with some of the MMA uh, fighters that, that you came across. This was early on when, when you decided to double down. Um, I, I presume that, and you talked a little bit about accessibility and how easy it was to talk to these guys. Uh, do you find that there's like a, a common personality thread uh, throughout the sport that, that these guys, you know, they might be monsters inside the octagon, but but that they're they're good guys at the end of the day. They're they're blue collar guys that are willing to help other people out. You know, it's 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 uh, it's a very interesting thing because I think that the MMA fighters are the most interesting fighters to, to cover because a a lot of them come actually from like you know good backgrounds. They're they're, they're well educated. They're either you know Olympians or all Americans. It's not you know a barroom brawlers or b you know rough and tumble. As, as many people think. I mean, it's very diverse and they all come, but they're all very well-spoken and they're very eager to get their stories out there. Now, today, you know, I can't really call Conor McGregor like right now and get an interview. I mean, I could probably get him, but, you know, it's a little different than five, six, seven, eight years ago when I would just write the guys on MySpace and, you know, Chuck Liddell is writing me back. <laughs> so they, they were big stars in their own little bubble, but uh, no one was really banging on their door asking for interviews. So they were, they were willing and eager to get their stories out there. And, you know, the fight game is an interesting thing. And you're talking about your upcoming fight and your feuds and your rivalries and knock, knocking this guy out and getting knocked out. I mean, it's all just very interesting stuff that you don't get to play around with in other sports. Um, they're very authentic. They don't have PR people telling them what to say. They don't have people telling them, you know, be careful of this or that. They just kind of shoot from the hip. And that, as a journalist, is all you really want. I mean, look at someone like Nick or Nate Diaz. Those guys, you have no idea where things are going when you're talking to them, and that's what makes it so fun. And that's what makes, you know, my job now so great, too. You know, um, you know, getting interviews and doing my shows, uh, you know, most people are accessible for the most part. You know, there are some that are tougher to get than others. But for the most part, you know, the, the biggest names are just a phone or, or text message away, a phone call or text message away, and I love that. Um, so it, it all feels so very big, but I like that in some weird way it, it still feels small, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I do. And it's it's funny. You just made me have a thought about how it, it's almost like the lack of polish is it, it it makes them all the more endearing. I I don't imagine that the Diaz brothers have a PR firm representing either of them. Um, I, I also don't even imagine. I, I mean, Connor is just Connor, right? It, there's nobody whispering in his ear what to say. That, that he That's just how his mind works, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly... He is who who you see. It, it really kind of bothers me when people say he's playing an act. He's truly not playing an act. That is 100% who he is. And I, I also should note, I mean, he is not... I mean, I don't know if you saw the post-fight coverage, but the guy is is actually quite grounded and down to earth and humble. And he's always been humble in victory, but you see how he is in defeat as well. Yep. I, I just really put out the blueprint how how a mixed martial artist should be. And, and even when Connor knocked out <coughs> Aldo, he was he was definitely happy, but it, he wasn't dancing over him. He shook his hand after the fight. He did show class in victory. You know, leading up to it, maybe not, but but after they stepped in that cage together, there was definitely a mutual respect. Look, he said this after the, uh, the Dustin Poirier fight. He said, I'm cocky in prediction, I'm confident in, in preparation, but I'm always humble in victory and defeat. And he never, if you look at all of his press conferences, he's 
He never takes, you know, unnecessary shots. I mean, yeah, the fight game, you're building fights up. I mean, people sometimes forget this. Sure. Oh, he talked all this smack. You can, his smack talk made Nate Diaz a much richer man. You know what I mean? Um, that's just part of the game. Um, you know, we, we sometimes get a little too sensitive about this stuff. Connor is very smart and what, part of his brilliance is actually that he's a major student of the game. I mean, when, when, when Nate Diaz was accusing him of being on steroids, he comes back with the Gilbert Melendez and Jake Shields stuff because yep. he consumes so much and he, you know, I mean, he could tell you, you know, if I throw out a fighter, he could tell you they're hide and reach. He studies everything. You know, I guess outside of maybe r- running, there really isn't a more pure sport, uh, than, than or pure I- engagement than, than combat sport. Yeah. And, and, you know, what, what else other than MMA with the, with the striking and the ground game and submissions and jujitsu on and on and on. What I'm what I'm studying here, what I'm researching, are are those common bonds that transcend international boundaries. And uh, you have a great story as the child of immigrants in Canada, who's you know now covering a sport that's based in the U.S. with this whole international lineup. Uh, I guess my question is, uh, you know, did do what do you attribute the international appeal or the universal appeal of this sport? What attributes of the sport do, do you think make it so, so popular in Brazil, Stockton, California, Ireland? There was an Afghan uh, fighter the, uh-huh. this weekend. What, what what brings us all together in the octagon? Well, first of all, you know, fighting has been around since, you know, the beginning of time. Um, and, and second of all, soccer, baseball, basketball, uh, football, cricket, rugby, they all have rules to them. <laughs> and MMA has rules as well. But at the end of the day, you could sit there with your grandfather who doesn't know how to speak English and, and, and explain to him that the, the mission in this fight is to beat the other person. That's pretty much it. You can point, don't hit below the belt, don't poke in the eyes, and, that, and that's pretty much it. Look at this fight on TV. These two people... They're trying to beat each other up and uh, either submit or knock out or, you know, eventually win the decision. That's it. It's pretty easy to explain. Now, I've tried to explain to my wife, to my sisters, to my mom, baseball. They still don't get it. <laughs> I've tried to explain to my wife, to my sisters, to my mom, football. They still don't get it. Um, those sports are just tough. You know, there's just rules. And if you're, if you're not focused, if you're not interested, if you don't want to, like, really truly grasp it, there's a lot. What? third and ten, and then they go to first sure. and ten. What is going on here? It's all very confusing. Two people, they walk into, you know, a ring or a cage, and one has to win. And it's the easiest thing. It's stuff that we were doing before we were even following sports. Dana White, I've heard him literally say this line a million times. I, I've, I've had the privilege of hearing him speak many times, and I've heard him repeat the exact same line over a million, it seems like, at this point. And he often says, fighting is in our DNA. We get it. We like it. Everyone understands it. You know, if there's a fight breaking out on the corner of the street, we are just drawn to it. People just want to see who wins, who will reign supreme. And that's, in a nutshell, I think, why this sport is so great. And then when you add in all the other elements and the the, the, the title and the rankings and the, the winning streaks and the trash talk, what more do you want? Where have you traveled for the sport? Did you have any idea how many countries you've been to or, uh, any, any idea of, or, and are there any favorites that you've gone, gone and traveled to? You know, it's funny you say that because, uh, I was just applying for my, um, my global entry card yesterday. <laughs> okay. And I had to think back to the places I've been to in the last five years. And I think I forgot some. Um, I've been to Canada, obviously. Sure. I've been to the United States. I've been to London a couple of times. I've been to Ireland. 
I've been to Brazil, I think five times now. I've been to Sweden. I've been to Japan, uh, to Tokyo in particular. I've been to Sydney and Melbourne. I've been to Abu Dhabi. Um, I've been to Mexico City twice for UFC. All over the States, obviously, uh, you know, I was actually pretty excited. I got to go to Vancouver, which was fun. Cool. To to, you know, I got to go to Calgary, which I'd never been to in Canada. Oh, wow. Um, I feel like I am missing some. I mean, I've been to Egypt and Israel prior to all this, but... Uh, not covering MMA, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not covering MMA. I feel like I'm missing one, um, it, one significant one. I could probably go through them in my head. Now, which is interesting, do you have any insight into the international strategy of uh, of UFC or or even of of you know MMA in in general? Is there in your conversations with Dana or anybody behind the scenes? Do you uh, do, do they tell you what they're looking for, where their growth areas are, why they're targeting certain areas? Well, it continues to evolve. Um, you know, they really made a big push a few years ago um, when they started doing a whole lot more events and they wanted to do more in Asia and, and obviously more in Europe. Um, and they had Fight Pass and they were doing these shows in Singapore. I mean, if you look at, you know, 2000, let's say 2003 to 2009, it's all pretty much American, you know, events. And then like in the last five years, you know, the places they've gone to just exploded and I haven't been to, you know, I don't go to every single event. So I think the, the goal is just to make, you know, they recognize that this is a sport, as we were talking earlier, that is easy to, to grasp regardless of where you're from. So let's get it out there. And they're lucky, you know, at the end of the day, you need to have people um, on your roster, fighters on your roster that the general public is is attracted to. So, you know, if, if you have great Brazilian fighters, it makes sense to bring them to Brazil. If you have great Irish fighters, it makes sense to go to Ireland. If you have great Japanese fighters, it makes sense to go to Japan. So once you have those guys, I mean, it's no secret, ever since GSP left, Canada is less, uh, you know, less on the radar these days. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you, you can credit him for exploding that market. And then once he leaves, you know, the, the shows just aren't, you know, as, uh, predominant and uh, they're not doing as well when they go there. Rory's around and there's some other younger talent, but it's just not quite the same. And then you look at Ireland and that's exploded because of Conor McGregor. So, um, you know, I think it's just, you know, it's part of the evolution and it's having more international stars and it's the sport getting bigger and also it's having TV deal, deals in these markets, which they didn't have before. And that helps grow because everything's being shown. And yeah, sometimes it's shown at these, uh, you know, strange hours across the world but they replay it and that helps, you know, get it bigger. Five years ago, they didn't have these TV deals there. Things were available on either small networks or, you know, via these paid services that just aren't as uh, popular as they are here. Like, that's not part of the culture to use pay-per-view. But once they got a lot of these fights on, you know, general free television in these markets, I think that helped them a lot as well. Let's start to wrap things up here. Uh, you've been very gracious with your time. Thank you very much. The, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of going to lead the witness a little bit, but do, do you think that there is, we, we talked a little bit about how Connor handled it and Holly and, and Misha handled, uh, their fights and the post fights was even more impressive. Um, do you find that after spending that 
you know, for lack of a better word, intimate um, experience in the octagon together. Do you think that it actually counterintuitively brings people together and, and builds mutual respect? Is that something that you've seen? Uh, yeah, I think to a degree. I mean, you know, it's a weird thing because when you go to these fights, like you don't see brawls or fights. And like, I think people sometimes think that MMA fans are these, you know, barbarians. Mm-hmm. Um it definitely feels at times like we're this community and, you know, even like the USA channel, like you don't hear that all that often. I, I huh. like, they, could, they, they could go, they could go to, you'll hear it sometimes, but when I went to, I, I gotta say like when I went to London, I was shocked at how many people were cheering for Anderson. I think people wow. are just there and they, they like him and it wasn't 100. I mean, I, I'd say it was like maybe, I don't know. 55, 45, it, it really was very split. Uh, and I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. Huh. And so that just is another example. You know, I, I, I really feel like MMA fans just look at things a little differently. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I remember when uh, Connor fought Mendez and uh, in the, the pre-fight, you know, they, they really wrapped up Mendez with the, the American flag and the country music, right? The guy, uh-huh. the, uh, the, the guy from the one band sang the song. Um, and I was like, Oh, I felt like they were playing on my, my emotions. I, I went in rooting for Connor and I was like, Oh wait, th- there's an American in the fight. And I, I, you know, I didn't know who to root for after that. Am I less? Yeah, and it, it almost felt a little forced to me, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it really, yeah. And that, I didn't know how I felt about Sinead O'Connor being there either. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you didn't like that? <laughs> As a practicing Catholic, I, I have some concerns oh, about her. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I mean, I love her. We're all God's children, but. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> Um, with Connor being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, I, I think that's really interesting that your career in a lot of ways was, was spawned by Sports Illustrated. Huh. Do, do you think that that, and anybody that works for Time, uh, Inc. now or, or works for the magazine says that it, you know, as much as people want to poo poo print media, that the magazine huh. is still an American institution. Um, do, I agree. Do, do you, that's a, that must say a lot about the sport and a lot about Connor that he's on the cover, right? Hundred percent. There's only been three. Uh, well, you could say three three people, but I'll, to be specific or to be more accurate, I feel like there's three times MMA has been featured on the cover. The first was after UFC '69, uh, and it was a picture of Roger Fuertes and Leonard Garcia fighting. Uh-huh. Uh, that was the event that was made famous because you know GSP lost in that Sarah, but the story wasn't about Roger Huerta or Leonard Garcia. It was just the coolest shot that they got that night. And it was more about the explosion of the UFC. I believe that was 2006. And then, uh, you know, the first athlete to be featured not that long ago, Ronda Rousey. And now yep. here we are, Conor McGregor. Interestingly enough, both of them lost after being <laughs> on the cover. So the SI curse uh, yeah. definitely uh, extends to mixed martial arts. But to me, as someone who has been, uh, uh, subscribing to that magazine since I was, I believe, eight or nine, and it's followed me from one house uh, in Montreal to another, to Syracuse, every dorm that I was in, to when I moved to New York City, to where I am now as a father. I mean, uh, it's been like a constant. It's like a friend. And I'll be honest, there, there's some weeks where I don't even get to read a single, I don't even open it, because, you know, there's just so much going on. But when I see Connor on the cover, I mean, there's, and I go to the airport and I see him on the cover, there's like a sense of pride there, a weird sense of pride. It's like, wow, this is our sport and we're finally getting noticed. And I, I tweet about it and I don't work for SI, but it, to me, I think it's a great thing. And I get some people right back like, who cares? Like, it's just a stupid magazine. They don't understand what SI 
you know, what FI means to, to American culture and to the athletes as well. So uh, it will be a very sad day if they ever stop, you know, uh, you know, producing that magazine in, in, in its current form and make it online. I always want to read it and it's just, it's a different kind of, you know, way of consuming. And there's something nice about holding the magazine still. Yeah. Um, sometimes I don't get to it, but yeah, I, I always, I always get, you know, excited when MMA is featured even inside the magazine. This is Morgan popping in again. At this point in the conversation, Ariel and I went off on a discussion about whether or not he thought that mixed martial arts would be making a return to New York. And if you've been following this, obviously, earlier this year, the state decided to finally legalize mixed martial arts, and this part of the conversation just wasn't pertinent anymore. It did, however, transition into a discussion of Madison Square Garden, which again is hosting UFC 205 on November 12th. And Ariel's love of the New York Knicks, who call Madison Square Garden home. So uh, with that, Ariel starts telling us a little bit about what he thought about the Knicks, specifically in the 2015-2016 season. It will be a very cool day when uh, MMA is, is finally in the world's most famous arena. Now, the Knicks are, are soiling that place, but <laughs> not making it very, uh, <laughs> very, you know, very... It, it, the, 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 the sanctuary that is the Mecca, right. uh, is, you know, it's just, it's not, uh, still gonna be starting off. But, 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 uh, <laughs> but speaking of international athletes, so you gotta be excited about Por- yes. Porzingis, right? My man, KP. <laughs> I love that man. <laughs> uh, if I ever have another kid, I'm gonna name him Chris. <laughs> I, here's a crazy story for you. Uh-huh. I'm at the airport traveling to UFC 189. I'm at JFK. It's July. In fact, it's July 8th. And it's my 33rd birthday, so this past summer. And I always wanted to turn, you know, I was always excited about the idea of being 33 because my man Patrick Ewing wore the number 33. So it was like, cool. everything I did back in the day was 33, 33, everything. And, um, I'm at the airport, uh, I'm, 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 I'm sitting there and, uh, I start to notice some familiar faces. And lo and behold, it's the Knicks Summer League team. Oh, wow. Uh, flying, you know, to Vegas. To Vegas. As am I. For the UFC event, they're flying for summer league, and it's all the it's all the, the you know Langston Galloways and uh, Cleanthe Earlies, and of course Chris Porzingis. And so I'm very excited here. Now, um, just a couple weeks earlier, Chris Porzingis drafted by the Knicks, yeah. and in maybe my dumbest Twitter moment ever, I crapped all over the place. Oh, I was very upset. Oh, oh now, you, you see, This is the reason why. This is the reason why. First of all, I had to endure. A horrendous season uh, because they were tanking, and I was hoping we would get the first or second, yep. or worst case third pick because there was the three-headed monster of Towns, uh, Okafor, and uh, Russell. So I thought, okay, worst case you get you get D'Angelo Russell. Well, we end up with the fourth pick, and that was devastating. I had to endure that entire horrible season for the fourth pick. Now, Chris Sapp, as you may recall. Was not really a household name like when the no. when the uh, the lottery happened, like in May before the actual draft lottery, and then like Woj and some people start writing articles about him, uh-huh. and that's all great. We're seeing videos of him like shooting around, but like wait, wait, this is skinny nineteen year old kid from Latvia. We've seen this story before: Darko Milicic, uh, Skidishvili, all these guys. Frederick Weiss. So th- then it then it gets to yes, exactly, and then it gets to draft night. And okay, Lakers pick Russell. I'm like, oh my god, the Sixers aren't going to pick Okafor. They have big men. Maybe we will get Okafor. They pick Okafor, and then it's freaking Porzingis. And 
you also have to understand, you, did you grow up a Knicks fan? Yeah, I did. Okay, so you know, in the last, you know, 16 years since they traded Ewing, except for that one good year outlier year with Mike Woodson, I mean, what have the Knicks done to, 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 uh, give us the, the assurance that they know what the heck they're doing, with all due respect. Like, w- what kind of credibility have they built with us as a fan base to let me think, you know what? All right, this is a bit of a long shot, but this, they've got an amazing scouting team. They've got smart men running the organization. They've got a smart owner. You know what? This is this is the right call. I'm on board. They've done everything but that. So I'm sitting there thinking, we screwed up again. I mean, who is this guy with this red suit? I mean, what is going on here? And so I freaked out. But I took a breath after freaking out, and uh, I realized this is ridiculous. I should get a hold of myself. And then, this is where it all comes comes together and, and, and shows that you should sometimes take a breath. I see him. So I see him on my 33rd birthday, the Patrick Ewing Day. Now I see the franchise, the future, the heir apparent. I meet him, and I go up to him, and I, I say, you know, great to meet you. Yeah, I said to him, uh, shove it up, Stephen A's butt, prove everyone wrong. <laughs> And I'm rooting for you, man. And he couldn't have been nicer. Like, you could tell when someone's just trying to blow you off. Yep. And you could tell when someone's genuinely happy. No one really recognized him, amazingly, because he's only, like, two weeks in. I mean, there were some people. No one went up to him. We're in the terminal. And I and I went up to him. We took a picture. And I was just like, <laughs> all right, this is my guy. Now, he had yet to play a single preseason summer league game. So I wasn't jumping on any bandwagon. I'm like, all right, this is my guy. And on top of that, I got, because uh, I travel so much, I don't fly first class for business, yep. but sometimes I get bumped because of all the points. I got bumped. And who's sitting directly in back of me? The franchise, the future, <laughs> KP6. And his legs were so freaking long. I didn't even, I didn't recline. I was offering him drinks. I was offering him a, a, a blankie, anything to make him comfortable. But that's something I'll never forget. I can't wait when the Knicks win. And now I'm getting all emotional talking about this. And I'm sorry for going on a tangent. When the Knicks win it all, and I take my kids, my two sons, to uh, the, the the parade. I can't wait to tell them that story. It's the day I met them. Ariel, I, I can't think of a better way to wrap things up. Uh, thank you again for your time. And uh, I, uh, I I look forward to keep following you and, and the MMA going forward. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for reaching out. And I wish you the best. Thank you for touch. Thanks. For Ariel Hawani, I'm Morgan O'Brien. Thank you for listening to the Diplo Sport Podcast. Please take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Diplo Sport. And we always like it if you subscribe to us on iTunes and if you can give us a rating, that'll ensure that we continue to get great guests like Ariel. <laughs>